Welcome to the Augustine Podcast, a conversation about the life, work, and thought of St. Augustine of Hippo. Today I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Alex Fogelman. Dr. Fogelman is an assistant research professor of theology at the Institute for Studies of Religion at Baylor University, where he serves as a project manager for the Global Flourishing Study. He received a BS in Business Administration from North Carolina State University, an MDiv from Regent College, and a PhD in Historical Theology and Patristics from Baylor University. He is the author of three books, all in progress. The one we are speaking about today, Knowledge, Faith, and the Early Christian Initiation, should be out this autumn from Cambridge University Press. He also has a more accessible, non-academic version of the same general topic of catechesis called Becoming Christian, Catechesis in History, Theology, and Practice, forthcoming from Erdman's. He is currently working on a book with Dr. Thomas Breedlove, also of the Baylor Institute for Studies of Religion, called The Nature of Human Flourishing, Early Contemporary Perspectives, which examines in detail Gregory of Nyssa and Augustine of Hippo on the nature of human flourishing. Dr. Fogelman is also the author of several articles on Augustine, Hilary, Gregory of Nyssa, Basil of Caesarea, and Tertullian. Dr. Fogelman, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to chatting. Let's just start off with hearing a bit about you and your work. I know the informal version, but can you just tell me officially what's your job title and where are you at Baylor? Because you're not... Right. I know Baylor is very siloed in... Yes. So I am in a, a group called the Institute for Studies of Religion, mm-hmm. um, which is a largely research grant seeking institute it's interdisciplinary units i'd say it started mostly um as a social scientific sort of hub for studies of religion so it was started by um rodney stark the famous sociologist and the current director um byron johnson um who's primarily a criminologist and has done a lot of work in uh, faith-based initiatives in prisons um but over the, they started this in 2004. Um, and so over the last 20 years, they've, they've developed it into a really wow. um, productive and active research hub. I'd say, again, a lot of social scientists and historians and now a few theologians. Um, the big project that um, I was brought on to work with is this project called the Global Flourishing Study, um, which is a large five-year study of flourishing all around the world, 22 countries, 200,000 people, tracking them over five years. Um, and and then thinking about it in term, across disciplines. So again, we have a lot of social scientists, psychologists, but also theologians and philosophers trying to get at this question about what is flourishing. Um, and, and so that's where some of the, some of my current research is, is engaging with so um but yeah so it's not in the religion department it's not at the seminary it's not in the honors college <laughs> it is uh, um um uh, it's actually falls directly under the provost office uh advantages and <laughs> um so but it's it's a great it's again it's mostly um uh very research um focused group so good good yeah. you enjoy it all right and it's been fantastic yeah it's been just a really uh, uh, encouraging, productive environment. I mean, uh, the sort of the legendary 
historian Philip Jenkins is just down the hall. Um, and so he turns out about a, a book a year. And so just, you know, getting coffee with him is is something to, you know, you're like, oh, I, sh- I should get back to writing. <laughs> it's just a, a great sort of uh, environment to to work in. Good. I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, I was, I'm amazed that whatever Baylor has done in the last 20 years, uh, I feel like Baylor was like this tiny little Baptist college and now they, I feel like flipped a switch and said, what if we're the best at like seven things? Yeah, that's uh, right. <laughs> we'll, be, we'll be great at sports, all the sports and philosophy and social science and theology. Yeah. I don't know how the, the ethos of the university is. I've been to the university and seen the the sort of Baptist grandeur down there, but yes, yeah. It, very big, a big project over the last 20 years starting in the early early 2000s or so. They've, they really made this, this giant push. Um, and so, yeah, it's been fun to be a part of that. I think the press is, the Baylor University Press has really taken yeah. off over the last several years. Um, and so yeah, it's, it's fun, fun place to be around, be a part of. Yeah, yeah good. Yeah, tell me about yourself. Give me the official bio. Where have you, you come from? What does your research focus on within this institute? Yeah, definitely. So um, I, I grew up in the Carolinas, North and South Carolina, um, and then did um, drove drove across the country <laughs> in our little Toyota Camry uh, back in 2012 to go to Regent College in Vancouver. Um, and there... Can I ask how you went? Like, did you have a specific route that you took? Um, oh, yeah. Or yeah, one we, you enjoyed? We went through Chicago. Uh, we mostly stayed along the way. We tried to stay with people we know. We didn't have any money. It was just my, my wife and I. We'd been married for two years uh, at the time. No kids. And so we just packed everything that we what we had in our little Camry, except the stuff that's still in my you know parents' attic. Um, and we drove. We stayed with people along the way. So it was a little bit of a circuitous route up until after we got through Chicago. We spent a day or two in Chicago, and that was really fun. And then we drove up through um, kind of Montana, uh, and and just kind of went north and then went, went across straight west. <laughs> and it was some. There was some point where um, the GPS we like turned onto whatever highway that is that goes through you know southern montana i was like stay on this road for 587 miles <laughs> all right here we go cool. uh, but it was a beautiful drive i've never yeah. driven through the rockies you know and the east coast we think we have mountains and then we just turns out we just have hills yeah so it was absolutely stunning to drive through the rockies i just and- ask because we i went to school at biola oh yeah so we i also got my wife uh, had been married I think a year and a half, so not not quite as long. Uh, but got a little Toyota Tacoma and drove out to Viola, and we we went back and forth a few times. So we tried different routes, but yeah, we did we did drive out from LA to Regent while we were there. Oh, nice! They yeah. have some friends there. Yeah. Oh, very cool. Yeah, yeah it's, it's great. We love coming down. We'd go. I don't think we ever made it as far down. We I think as far down as we went was probably Portland. Um. But it's just beautiful driving. Yeah, uh, that was my my favorite was going up high. Yeah, going through the Dakotas. Uh, yeah. I do remember when we drove home from COVID, we were just trying to get home as fast as possible, 
and we got on I-40 in LA, which, you know, goes yeah. right through, through Raleigh and Home. Right through Raleigh. <laughs> yeah, stay on 40 for the rest of the country. That's right. Uh, crazy. Great. Sorry to interrupt. Just curious how you're, yeah. you're traveling no, across. It's very fond, that fond memories of that. Great way to start theological studies is by just um, driving every inch of the, the country. Um, so, yeah, we went up there. I was sort of vaguely interested in... Um, I've been reading things like, you know, um, some of the spiritual disciplines literature, like um, Eugene Peterson, Dallas Willard, those kinds of things had a sort of big impact on me when I was a younger, um, you know, kind of college age person that kind of changed the changed the trajectory uh, for me. And was reading a bunch of those and then being in the Carolinas, not too far from Duke, you know, Stanley Hauerwas, you know, it's all over the used bookstores of the Raleigh-Durham area. I was, I was reading some of that. N.T. Wright, you know, I read I read a bunch of N.T. Wright during those those days. And I deliberately remember thinking, so I was kind of interested in like New Testament theology and then sort of more contemporary theology and spirituality and stuff like that. And I just remember thinking like, why in the world would anybody study patristics? Like it's so close to the Bible, but it's not the Bible. And it's so far away from everything that we know of today. <laughs> and um, and then of course, as as it goes, about a, a year, kind of my first year at Regent, um, I had started reading uh some of Hans Borsma's work um and started taking classes with him and then sort of just became enthralled by the patristic uh, world, the patristic literature, um, particularly Augustine. Um, uh, I can't remember the, the exactly the initial attraction um, to Augustine, but there was, some, there was something just resonant in his own story uh, with my own, you know, it's that kind of like you see your, you see yourself presented more clearly, or you see the thoughts and questions you have presented more clearly in this author than you can articulate for yourself. Um, and so there was something to that. That was sort of the initial attraction to Augusta in particular, but I was particularly interested in, I was like this, this broader world, what uh, Borisman would talk about is the great tradition. Yeah. Um, I was more interested in the, in the kind of um, the, what, you know, some traditions would call a worldview uh, what he would just call the sort the sort of sacramental ontology mm-hmm. uh, of the early church. Um, so what some of the um, conceptions of the world and its relation to God that were shared among this broader group of early Christians. Um, and so I was interested in that world, but I thought, you know, it, it's, <laughs> I can't read everybody at the same time. So I'll start with Augustine and then sort of like, <laughs> work my way back from there and, and took a long time to, you know, get beyond the guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so that was the initial, uh, initial foray into that. Um, was that the first time you had read Augustine? Cause you said you did a business undergrad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was, I don't know if that was the first time I probably read confessions somewhere in there beforehand, but that was the first time that I encounter like reading Augustine, not just like excerpted in, in 
you know, secondary source text. So that was, and, and it was the first time I, w- I got to read, you know, was given the chance to say, you know, here's a topic, um, go figure it out, you know, and just go engage in the sources and kind of get familiar with this range of literature. Um, I remember writing after we had our first kid and then thinking about baptism. Um, so I, I, we, both my wife and I grew up in infant Baptist traditions, but then I didn't know why we did that. And then we were going to a Baptist church at the time. So I was like, wait, what, <laughs> why? So it was, um, you know, I got to write a paper on infant baptism and, mm-hmm. and Augustine and sort of trying to understand the logic of baptism more broadly, but doing that through the, through reading Augustine, it was this so an inquiry into it, into a kind of pressing topic, but kind of reading it through the lens of um, this great thinker and the particular historical um, engagements that he, that he was involved with at the time. Um, so it's all this a really helpful sort of exercise in just the process of thinking and the process of seeking wisdom and trying to, to figure out what to do <laughs> um, and how best to live. So it was just a helpful way for me to, I think I, I never really um, subscribed to the idea that one should think for themselves, you know, <laughs> um, that always sounded just <laughs> kind of naive and not smarter people and dumber people but yeah <laughs> so the idea of like thinking for yourself i think was always kind of like oh. <laughs> um oh, thanks um and so that idea this was later articulated you know in more in more better ways like um one of my one of the baylor professors here alan jacobs writes really well about this idea of what it means to think well and he articulates this in terms of um, he articulates that idea much better. Nobody think nobody actually does think for themselves. He articulates most ideas much better. That's right. That's right. So they, the very idea that you should think for yourself is an idea you learned from someone else, and so you know, so on. And um, uh, so, but I, I think I just kind of intuited that idea that thinking with somebody who was um, a much better thinker and a wiser person, a saint. Um, so thinking with um, the saints on these on these topics that were I, I had not quite worked through or didn't know quite quite what to do with, um, I found that to be just uh, a really um, useful, helpful exercise. Um, yeah. So what you know, as I thought about what it meant to be, you know, why why do we <laughs> write stuff? Why do we do research? Like why do we pursue these things? Um, it just, I, I wasn't, you know, again, wasn't um, articulating all these things, but this, this is what, looking back, this is like what I think I was doing. Yeah, absolutely. Have you kept up with uh, what Alex Jacobs is doing? Like, he's blogging through the city of God right now. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's very hard to keep up with what he does, but um, yeah. yeah, reading through city of God um, and all the stuff he does with, with W.H. Auden. He comes, he did uh, a few years ago, he came and did, there's a group that um, here in Waco called um, Brazos Fellows, which is, it's a nine month sort of post undergrad, um, you know, uh, cohort 
uh, group that that meets based, based out of uh, the church we go to here, and they go through sort of deep readings and the Christian tradition and the context of worship and spiritual direction and prayer and all these things. Um, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. But Alan Jacobs came in and did, um, you know, a session with this group on uh, Auden's great Hora Kananakai um, and on, on Good Friday. And it's, it's just an incredible thing to behold. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, no, I, I, I really can't keep up. <laughs> Fair enough. I can't either, but I, I saw that uh, he was getting through the city of God and I've, I've read a few yeah. of them as they've come out. Yeah, good. Good. So you've, you came to Augustine um, in Regent. Was Eugene Peterson still at Regent when you were there? No, he was already, he was already, uh, had already retired and moved on. Okay. Um, he was back in Montana, just, you know, walking the mountainsides, I think. And um, so now he came back once for the um, during the time that we were there, they installed the Eugene and Jan Peterson Chair of Theology and the Arts. Um, And so he came back for that. And there was a a lovely reception. And um, my my wife and I play music. Um, She sings and um, she's a great singer. And so we did get to perform um the the person who was being installed in the chair um former professor ewan russell jones requested that we sing bob dylan's every grain of sand which is incredible this is like 80s era bob dylan yeah. um like you know the, the religious bob dylan <laughs> or evangelical bob dylan um every grain of sand and so we got to perform that that was my claim to fame was that nice. we got to, perform a Bob Dylan song for Eugene Peterson. And, uh, you know, that was, that was the pinnacle of our Regent college career. <laughs> Amazing. Good. Good. So you left Regent, you did, you say you did your PhD at Baylor. Yes. I did PhD at Baylor. Um, and you know, kind what of was the, the focus of that? Yeah. So it was kind of, um, yeah, it's that sort of like awkward conversation. You go to your, you know, your sort of beloved professor advising you're like ah oh, i think i want to do phd studies uh, and they're like you know you shouldn't do that that's a terrible idea for x y and reasons and you're like good ah. professor yeah yeah like i know but I, I love this thing and i can't not do it and they're like oh you shall you shouldn't do it and you're like okay but i still like, okay okay <laughs> um so you do i did that dance with uh with Borsma. And then, so he helped me sort of navigate that sort of, here's patristic, you know, supervisors. Um, we had, we had kind of, we had two kids at the time. Um, and so we had kind of blocked out UK programs and, and probably Canada. So we mostly just looked at the U S um, and that meant needing to be, a, not needing to be as specific with a, a dissertation focus oh yeah um so we have two all the u.s programs have you know two years of coursework and then three years of writing um so the sort of um application for the u.s programs was just sort of like this is you pretending like you know what you're talking about even though we all know that you're not actually going to be writing on this (laughs) so i think i i can't remember exactly what i (laughs) proposed to Baylor that I was going to be writing on, but I think it was something on Augustine and um, 
mystical theology or uh, it's like mystical theology in his sermons and homilies. So sort of like the everyday, you know, how does, how does the, uh, you know, the Augustine of confessions preach <laughs> and, you know, interpret scripture in the more mystical vein, like how does he do the sort of similar sort of mystical theology moves that he does in some of, you know, De Trin and, and confessions. Yeah. How does he do that in sermons and uh, ecclesial mysticism was the kind of like word that I, word that I used. Um, so I think that's what I, I was kind of interested in initially. Um, and that's what I proposed. And then in arriving at Baylor, so we arrived in 2016, I came to work with D.H. Um, Williams, who is primarily in the academic world. He's primarily um, in fourth century sort of Ni- Nicene Trinitarian um, work. He's done a lot of work on Ambrose, uh, Hilary Pottier, kind of fourth century Latins um, right. is kind of his main area of focus. And then he's written several sort of more popular level works or general audience works on um, retrieving the tradition for evangelicals. Uh, so he, he edited a series for Baker in the early 2000s called Evangelical Resource Ma. Um, it's a great series of books. Um, and so it was kind of one of these figures, uh, kind of leading figure, both, you know, with the academic credentials and expertise and kind of that sort of old school petrologist (laughs) mentality um, in which he just knows, you know, his, his background was in, uh, in kind of classics and um, historical studies of religion. So he can talk to you about ancient philosophy. He can talk to you about sort of ancient religion, Uh, um, but then, and then primarily wrote on, like I said, Ambrose and other, other um, fourth century Latins. But just one of these sort of capacious minds has this incredible sort of memory and recall for what, you know, the apologetic works of pseudo-Justin can tell you about such and such. Um, and so he was um, a, a just a great um, person to work with. Um, really, really fortunate to have a good PhD mentor, um, Dr. Williams. So that was that was a real um really, really fortunate to have a great mentor. Um, and he could also, he just kind of, again, he's got kind of the last 40 years of patristic scholarship just there. So I, you know, I, I could like say, what about this? What about this? And he's like, ah, that's been done. That's, you know, <laughs> don't, don't look there, you know, so he could kind of, you know, just kind of help me, help steer me in a, in a good direction. Did he say not ecclesial? You know, I don't even know. I don't even think we had got it got to that point. He, I don't think he ever said said that about that project. So it was like two years of coursework, and I took some courses with him. And and Baylor does a more kind of holistic, um, or they try to do a more broad reaching coursework. So I only took maybe two or three courses in patristics, but then they wanted you to be able to teach, you know, church history. Um, right. And so took coursework on medieval reformation several couple courses on american uh, religion um global christianity um so two what, years, what department is this in at this is in the department of religion so okay. yeah in the in the strange uh siloed world of baylor yeah <laughs> there is uh the department of religion 
only does undergrad. So they do all the undergrad classes in religion and the, and the PhD. Okay. Whereas the Truett Seminary is a part of Baylor, but it completely runs completely separately. Right. And they do all the MA, MDiv, um, MTS kind of degrees. They do some doctorate ministry. They may do a, a, a few doctorate classes that are more specific to um, church ministry, like a doctor of preaching, I think they do. Yeah. But they're kind of, um, if you you know get a PhD in religion from Baylor, it's from the religion department. Cool. Now, there's been people that have been through Baylor that have done PhDs on Augustine <laughs> in the philosophy department. They've had professors at various points that can see my undergrad professor did a phd in augustine that i don't think baylor would take on the a philosophy <laughs> phd anymore <laughs> and then there's a number of but yeah you know, so you what that basically means is you know your primary supervisor has to be you know approved to supervise dissertations in the religion department but you can have a number of of people be kind of third readers, uh, wow. third fourth readers that are around the university. So David Wilhite, who's a, a great patristic scholar, who's a Truett, you know, um, he can't supervise PhD dissertations in the religion department, but he's almost always the kind of second or third reader on any sort of patristic sort of PhD that comes through Baylor. Yeah. So he's a great um, kind of second mentor, um, great reader. Um, very astute so he yeah, there's great people around but in terms of you know all the all the red uh the red tape of trying to work your way through an institution that was uh something to navigate i'm in a similar spot here yeah. like i'm in the philosophy department at aberdeen but pretty much all my work is out of the divinity department okay yeah and my my supervisor is john bear who's in the divinity department Okay. Does not do Augustine, does not do philosophy. <laughs> but I'm working with Lewis at Durham. And then, yeah, I have a supervisor on paper for now. She will actually read my work later, but uh, who's in the philosophy department, who does historical philosophy. She's like, oh, I got nothing to say on Augustine. Yeah. If they say it's good, it's good. I'll tell you if it passes as philosophy. <laughs> so it's the same sort of thing over here. Yeah, that's right. You're like, here's, here's the thing, and here's where I am. Here's my institution. Here's my topic. And let's just sort of collage a number of people together to, to make it all work. All right. <laughs> and so what do you end up writing on? Yeah, so I end up writing on um, the development of patristic catechesis, or kind of this pre uh, teaching before and after baptism. So okay. basically, broadly conceived baptismal education. Um, and, and decided fairly early on, most of just focus on Latin Christianity, North Africa, and Italy. Um, and it, it came out of that topic, kind of, it somewhat came out of the ecclesial mysticism. I was interested in, you know, how is, um, you know, faith taught and learned and communicated in sort of ordinary Christian life, that sort of thing. It's probably the connection there. Um, but also it's just started because out it, you know, at our, at our church that we go to, like, um, the rector at our church is, is, was one of like the sort of leading voices in our, <laughs> in our church tradition about, um, recovering catechesis. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it was the first time 
uh, sort of seeing being in a, in a local church where I really saw that what it could look like for a local church community that had a really sort of solid catechetical foundation. Because, you know, you hear this all the time from professors, from seminary professors, university professors, you know, the the students that are coming in, like, just don't know the basics of, of faith anymore. Yeah. Like, oh, you know, any professor that's been teaching for 20 years, they, they all say the same thing. Like, students are no longer catechized. Like, they're coming to a Christian college like Baylor, and they, they you know, it's not the same. <laughs> Something's happened, <laughs> you know, or like they come to seminary and they've, they've not read their, read the Bible or they don't have a sort of basic foundation. So a lot of like first year university or even, even seminary ends up being um, sort of Christian catechesis. Um, and so then I, then I go to this church. That's like, it's one of their main things that they do. Uh, it's like uh, we do catechesis, we worship and then we do mission. Like that's the that's the three things we do. Um, so I was really kind of inspired by that, intrigued by that, um, and then wanted to again, as I as I've been doing, just kind of like looking at the at the patristic tradition. Well, you can't go like once you're looking for it, you can't go two minutes without seeing the importance of catechetical instruction, the, the role of catechumens in the early church. Um, it's all over the place. Um, east and west and everywhere else. Um, and so with this kind of question in mind, just basically the question was very open-ended, just like, what did they do? Uh, what was the point? <laughs> what was the purpose uh, of, of this kind of uh, formation? Um, you know, so started looking at that in the patristic church. There's um, some great stuff specifically on Augustine on this topic, um, as with all Augustine topics, there are <laughs> good works <laughs> on many, many topics. Uh, there's, but there's a particularly great uh, book uh, just called Augustine and the Catechumenate uh, by the late William Harmless. Um, he's a great, a great Augustine scholar um, and, and wrote, wrote this wonderful book and then revised it. He wrote it, I think the first edition came out in 95 or so, and then revise it in 2014 um and it's just it's just a, a fantastic work and so i realized i couldn't do just a project on augustine and the catechumenate um in the way that he did so what i ended up doing was doing a kind of longer a little bit more of a survey work that started um with the early kind of formative influences in catechesis so looking at what we could as best we could tell what we see in uh, Irenaeus and Tertullian uh, Cyprian um, some of the writings associated with Hippolytus um, and so looking at that developing tradition and then looking at some of the other fourth century folks like um, Ambrose's writing there's a number of other folks sort of around Ambrose um, it's good Baylor gives you five years yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, so the the dissertation was a much more sort of uh, well, less coherent <laughs> version of this. But what the uh, now the book version of it ended up just being uh, a chapter on each of these of these figures. Um, so it ended up as a more kind of almost a survey, uh, but but trying to get at the question 
of well, the dis dissertation started out with the question about um, uh, the changes in the catechumenate in the fourth century. If this is one of the if there's a if there's a standard narrative about uh, uh, patristic catechesis, it's something to the effect of well, in the pre-Constantinian age, catechesis serves the purpose of bolstering this beleaguered community, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, so to avoid defecting in the face of adverse conditions and martyrdom. So this is where you get the, the language of it. it's this two to three year process and they're training martyrs. Um, and then uh, once Constantine legalizes Christianity, well, now all the elites want to join. So you have this flood of elites that are wanting to join Christianity, but they don't want to take the full commitment to baptism. So they just hover in the catechumenate and... Now, now you have all of these these bishops like Ambrose or in in uh, in Cappadocia, you've got Basil and and the Gregories both right addressing. You have the, all these sermons addressing catechumens. Yeah, come on, come be baptized. Whereas Tertullian's like, no, 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 wait, wait, wait until you're ready. Uh, so looking at this sort of change in uh, in the fourth century, and um, uh, and and saying, you know, is that really is that really what's going on? I mean, as I say it, in the way that I tell it, obviously when I tell it like that, it you can just feel the setup coming. Um, and so there's a little bit of that rhetoric <laughs> uh, that I that I deploy um, in the framework. But the, the real driving question was, well, um, obviously if the goal of scholarship is to provide more sort of in-depth studies, uh, you know, what can we say about these individual figures. If we look a little closer, if we take the microscope um, approach a little bit, what are some of the, the driving factors in these particular circumstances? <clears throat> so what, in the writings that we have from Tertullian, where you can sort of guess, again, it's less clear in the, in the pre-Constantinian period, it's less clear what's defined as catechetical literature. Um, yeah. But you do have him addressing, he'll say, for those of you that are approaching baptism, da 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 da, da. <laughs> for those of you who have just been baptized, you know, you do get these indications of uh, where early Christians like Tertullian are, are addressing um, catechumens, and they are called catechumens for him. So there's this kind of designation. Um, so I just wanted to look at each of these particular figures and say, what is going on? And these, like, what are the concerns they're addressing? Why are they writing? What are they hoping to do in addressing these people? <laughs> like, what are their concerns and what are they trying to do? So that was that was the sort of lens that I took with sort of each of these chapters. And so I was particularly interested in I, what I ended up doing was framing it in, in terms of epistemology, um, particularly religious epistemology. Like, what does it mean to know God? in these particular settings. Like how is Tertullian or Cyprian or Ambrose, what are they telling these new Christians and what it means to know God? Like what are the terms they're using? What's the language? What, what are the scripture, scriptural references that they're using? What does it mean for them to know God in that situation? And how are they teaching it? So this question about epistemology and pedagogy. Like, how is this, what does it mean to know God? And how is that taught? How is that communicated um, through these, 
physical medium. So that that became the kind of uh, uh, guiding approach of the. Okay. Of- Does that narrative hold up? You set it up as if it doesn't correct my typical view how does it change um, maybe before you answer that what do catechumens look like in these centuries i mean are they mostly adults are they are they born into the church i know we get lots of augustine on children and baptizing children and not baptizing children and we have this picture of of families growing up in the church like augustine did I assume that's not as popular early on though you have perpetua and felicitas with little babies so yeah yeah, what is what is the sort of demographic? How long do they stay catechumens? Is it really two or three years? Maybe give me that and then correct my broad yeah, narrative. Yeah. yeah, no. Um yeah, I mean certainly there's still things that change over time. Like you have a more um I mean I, I do think it's fair to say that there's more structure by the fourth century. Like you have clear patterns where across the empire, you know, they're teaching the creed. And the Lord's Prayer, like or or the symbol of faith, as they as they would more. They weren't teaching the creed in the second century. <laughs> <laughs> I do think there's some there are some things to be said about um, uh, the rule of faith, and that nobody will let nobody will let you say that the rule of faith is a you know proto creed. Um, but there there is a, a very, I think what what I was what I was really interested in with uh, with the rule of faith and what does really. So I was much more interested in the in the continuities um, in this in this tradition, and um, one of the the most striking sort of continuities between, say, what Irenaeus and Tertullian talk about when they talk about the rule of faith, um, and especially when that's sort of seen when that term, um, you know, canon or regula, that sort of language in its um, kind of ancient philosophy context. It's it's also very much associated with this kind of entry level education. So it's in the kind of education program, uh, especially in kind of stoic Epicurean uh, philosophy. Um, There's a whole bunch of literature on this sort of pen and and, uh, regular language in ancient philosophy. And and that the importance of that with memory was sort of building the memory. Um, and so you have a you have a similar sort of that transfer. You see that in Irenaeus and Tertullian, the importance of of the regula for informing, performing and, and uh, informing the Christian memory. Um, and that is something that you still see when Christians in the fourth century and fifth century, like Augustine, are teaching uh, the symbol of faith. Okay. Um, it's very much articulated in terms of sort of ancient memory culture. Um, right. So the, the writing of the scholar Mary Carruthers is written a lot on memory in the ancient mm-hmm. world, not specifically on on. Um, on catechesis so much, but just the the importance uh, and centra- centrality of the role of memory um, in the ancient world uh, was really striking and really sort of eye-opening for me. Uh, and that gave, again, that gave another sort of lens through which I could understand better what um, the early Christians were doing. So for, to take an example of this, is like 
Um, yeah, Augustine does this a lot. The other, uh, there's another fifth century Italian, Peter Christologus, um, does the same kind of kind of rhetoric. And they'll say, don't write, Ambrose does this, don't write down uh, the symbol of faith on paper, inscribe it in your heart, right? Mm -hmm. right uh, uh, and then that's often interpreted as part of what scholars call the disciplina arcani, you know, the discipline of secrecy. You know, don't write it down so that the, the non-baptized don't hear it. Mm -hmm. And it seemed to be connected with this sort of, um, again, kind of political, sociopolitical interpretation of early Christianity, right? Um, you don't, you don't tell the creed to outsiders so that they don't know about it and we can maintain the integrity. And then, uh, you know, this sort of is a layover in the fourth and fifth century. Um, so that's kind of the way that I, I'd always heard about that dis discipline of secrecy, you know, yeah. the creed with outsiders. Well, all the, the language that they use is all like ancient memory culture language, <laughs> you know, um, the soul as this sort of storehouse of memory, this arc of the memory, this library <laughs> of the soul. Um, so I, I see them, well, sure, they're doing all this other stuff, discipline of secrecy and, and all this thing. But it, with this kind of lens, I could, I could just much more easily see that they were tapping in to this. It's an ancient philosophy kind of culture and this ancient rhetorical culture, the, the, the cultivation of memory. Um, so I was, I'm, I, so I don't end up saying it, it's none of the political stuff. It's all of the sort of um, pedagogical, uh, philosophical, rhetorical stuff. Um, you know, as a PhD student. <laughs> you can't really say wasn't, anything. Wasn't gonna like make uh, ridiculous claims. Um, but I was much more attuned to that kind of that kind of thing. Again, yeah. like you have a lens, um, and and it helps you see things that other people haven't seen before. And so I don't. There's a, a you know, you you see this in in different different ways. But I, I could really just you know that, that the whole memory piece was just kind of a, a loose thread that ran throughout the whole mm. whole project. Um, the importance of the memory to to the self, to the, to identity, to who we are. Uh, and of course, <laughs> yeah. all readers <laughs> who've made it through Confessions 10 know, uh, can, you know, oh yeah, memory, memory is absolutely central for um, the quest to know God. And so I wasn't sort of like imposing that <laughs> on, you know, Tertullian or, or anything like that, but it was like, oh, this, this sort of centrality of memory, which is for us um, in the sort of post-enlightenment world, it is, it is a, you know, memory is not, <laughs> it's something to be worried about. You know, it's, it's something to, um, you know, on the one hand, we sort of look down upon mnemonic education as just rote memory. Yeah. And this, and this comes up in all the sort of later post-Reformation literature on catechesis. You know, you have, you know, once catechisms become a text <laughs> in the Reformation, um, it's like, yes, but you gotta you gotta make sure they're not just memorizing it like parrots. <laughs> Parroting <laughs> is, is a real bad word. Um, so you have this real worry about memory all the way through. I mean, I think it's still there and sort of right. Function. Oh yeah. Um, and at the same time, we we sort of place a lot of distrust on 
human memory, we place a lot more and more trust on external memory. So like, you know, memory on a, on a hard drive, on a computer, uh, on our phones, right? On the cloud, <laughs> yeah. right? Memory is everywhere else. We, but we offload it, right? It's no longer in us. <laughs> it's no longer inside of us. Um, and so that, that's one of these, it becomes a, in my own little, <laughs> little mind <laughs> that this becomes one of the most striking differences between sort of patristic and, and modern catechesis. And what does this patristic emphasis on memory do for the soul? I mean, what do they think it's, it's doing for the soul? Yeah. I assume they don't think we're just parroting. Yes. Right. Yeah. You don't have that kind of, I don't see the same kind of worries about, about parroting a much more a sense of on the one hand, the memory is your I don't want to go so far as to say it is yourself because, you know, all the complications, yeah. as, as you know, <laughs> uh, the language of, of the self in Augustine um, and in early Christian Christians more generally. But if there is a self, it would be something more like memory. Like it it yeah. just is who you are. Um, it's your um, all what you think about, you know, what you, you know, what happened in the past. Like you don't, as you know. Uh, you can't go back in there and do that. What you have is a present memory of a, of a past event. And, you know, your expectation about the future is you can't go into the future and actually, you know, be in that place. All you can have is, is a, a sort of what you might call a future looking memory. Um, but it's the same kind of faculty. Um, um, and so the, I think the memory is, a, is a central to, um, to who, the, who the person is. Um, and so when they're, when they're, um, teaching the creed, they use a lot of language. They use lots of metaphors and things, but one of the sort of common metaphors that they'll use in teaching the creed, um, is, is to the construction of a building. Um, and so the, and Cyril of Jerusalem actually has just a a beautiful sort of (laughs) one-to-one. He's like, let me compare catechesis to a building. (laughs) And he goes through and we, you're laying stones in order. So you're, when you're teaching the sort of outline of the creed, you're establishing order. And anybody who's read Cicero knows that order um, and organization is central to the well-formed memory. Right. Um, And so you, you have these very much like this is um, rebuilding your memory. This is giving you uh, um, a way, a memory in which you can encounter God. Um, so if, if for Augustine, even, even if it's ambiguous about whether, you know, he can actually encounter God in the memory, God has to break in, of course. Um, but the, the memory as this um, foundation, this building, this place, so it's, it's almost a literal place um, where the soul can really encounter God. Um, so I think memory is absolutely central for, for that encounter. Um, and later on, when you get to um, people like Aquinas uh, and Albert the Great, they'll talk about memory as one of the key elements in the, developing the virtue of prudence. You know, prudence right. is, is the forward looking, you know, but he's like, how can you know the wise thing to do? How can you develop the habit, the virtue of prudence without a well-formed memory? Uh, right. Because your actions in the future are dependent on your memory uh, in the past. And so, so for somebody like that, and, and I think you see this in, in monastic authors as well, the importance of memory becomes this, 
um, kind of laying the foundations, these stepping stones by which you can both live well, live virtuously, and and also and, in, and thereby encounter God. Um, so I think, I think memories is absolutely central to that. They also, Augustine has this great passage um, in one of his sermons to uh, catechumens. It's in that sermon. His sermons like 212 to 216 are, are yeah. the, a series of where he's addressing catechumens. He's, he's doing this handing over of the creed in expectation that they'll hand it back um, and at one point when he's addressing them and he's really telling them, he's using that language of don't write this down on paper, but write it in your hearts, inscribe it in your hearts. And he picks up on the language of uh, Jeremiah and Hebrews. And mm-hmm. This is the new covenant. This is the Holy Spirit inscribing in your heart um, mm-hmm. the new covenant. Um, so that's what's going on. <laughs> that's what's going on in um catechetical instruction of the memory it's it's a new foundation a new memory a a sort of you know to use way way far off language a reconstruction of the self you know Um, in this but but in their language this is you know through augustine he's a vessel he's not the one doing it he is through this instruction um this is an inscription of the new covenant written on the heart um so it's it's i think it's massively <laughs> significant um uh part of the, the christian formation christian identity um christian spiritual life all sorts of things um, do you see, structurally do you see catechesis as a block of sermons that we'd preach yeah. you know leading yeah. up to baptism or is it something intertwined in the rhetoric of of every sermon, I've heard different opinions on Augustine, but are yeah. there trends you see coming through the whole? Yeah, you do. I take a pretty broad approach to what counts as catechetical literature. That was okay. my term for it. Um, you have um, one of the most common forms, kind of genres you see is um, what in, in Cyprian's, uh, Cyprian has what's in some cases is called the, the ad Corinum, um, uh, the address to Corinus. Um, and it's this what's often called the testimonia collection or testimonia format. And so it'll just be a heading um, with some some kind of topic, some kind of thesis, like, you know, Christ as the wisdom of God. Christ is the word of God or something like that. Uh, so it'll be a statement like that. And then a series of like three to five scripture <laughs> passages. And it'll just be what to us, we often call proof texts or, or something. Yes. Like that. Um, and these are kind of like, you don't get a lot of commentary in them. You just have like the organization of these topics plus their, plus the scripture references. Um, and so this kind of thing pops up all over the place. You know, you see it in, you see it as early as Justin Martyr, this is kind of one of the things that's in the background of Irenaeus's little text, the proof of the apostolic preaching. Mm. Cyprian's one of the most sort of explicit um, examples of this. But it seems to be very much driven by apologetic, missional, and catechetical purposes. And a lot of these, you know, Cyprian's, Irenaeus, like these are organized kind of 
creedally, <laughs> we put it all in scare quotes, but they're, they tend to be organized. On the one hand, it's like the kind of Christian uh, supersession of, of Israel. There's, there's part yeah. of that is a lot of that. And then the next sort of section will be, you know, um, this kind of very creedal structure, uh, but then bolstered by here's all the key witnesses um, to this this thing. So Old Testament, New Testament, right. but here are the witnesses, the testimonies uh, of the prophets to this to this thing. So you have like you have texts like those those kind of formats. Um, you have um, you do have sermons. Um, Things like what, um, what you have from Augustine. Um, then you also have, I think there's these texts like, well, I think Irenaeus's demonstration or proof of the apostolic preaching is one of these texts. It's not a sermon to new believers. It's a text written from one priest to another or one bishop to another. And it's saying, because most of catechesis is oral. It's going to be... Yeah. And a lot of those aren't recorded. But what is going to be what, what kind of literature do you need to write down and give to somebody else? It's a kind of interclerical literature. Uh, so mm-hmm. kind of writing that's going to be written down and circulated amongst um, uh, clergy. Right. And so I think that's mostly the kind of literature. It's not till later that you have people, well, let's collect sermons. But then again, you ask, why are they collecting those? Who who are they being collected for? And again, it's often for other other clerics who are going to be doing this kind of work um, mm. in their own in their own congregations. Uh, and then you also have um, two two examples from Augustine are um, on, the on, on faith and works de fide et operibus. Mm-hmm. Uh, on faith and works is is written to address this you know issue. <laughs> it's a it's a polemical text but what the main topic is what to do with catechumens like that's the you know that's the background issue is like uh what you have are um you know it's, it's a text it's 411 412 something like that i think and you have these you know donatism's been crushed or whatever <laughs> it's, it's been put down so what you have in response are these kind of anti-donatist what you might call a, a laxist response and so sort yeah. of Laxism is a huge issue in North African Christianity all the way back. Um, and so you have these, these this kind of laxist, anti-donatist position that's saying, well, you know, pretty much just teaching the creed is good enough for, to get these people baptized. They don't need faith and moral formation. Um, let's just teach them the creed and let's baptize them. Uh, and the, I think what I mean, one of the issues is especially divorce and remarriage. Like, should we, uh, but the, the the sort of ostensible issue is, do we just teach the faith before baptism or we do do we do faith and some kind of moral teaching? Moral formation? Yeah. And Augustine's actually pushing back against that and arguing for a more sort of robust moral formation. And he, and, he, and he roots this in sort of orthodox principles, but also just in the history of of, of the tradition. So it's, what's all that time for <laughs> that they're called um, catechumens, if not to be 
to hear and to learn to live a faith. It's a great, great quote in that in that passage. So you you can see this um, in the in the background of a text how central this issue of catechetical formation is. Um, there's a, a a recent scholar who's written a book on this, um, Matthew Pignot, I think is how you say his name, French uh, guy, but he had this uh, book that just came out with Brill a few years ago on Augustine and the, and the catechumen. It's not called that, but it's something on that. It's a longer, you know, it's a Brill title. So is it in French? No, it's not. It's, it's oh, in, good. Yeah. This was in Oxford. I think he wrote his dissertation in Oxford. I can't afford it either way if it's from, yes. but it's good enough. <laughs> um, and so it's a fantastic book. It's more sociological. He's not so much interested in, Harmless is interested in more of the sort of, you know, retrieving Augustine's catechumen for contemporary. Um, he's Harmless is thinking more about um, RCIA, Catholic uh, Education yeah. Initiation. Um, this other book is more just a kind of, sociological historical look but he really does emphasize the, the importance of of the catechumenate um in augustine's age the sort of the contested <laughs> the contestedness of this issue and so looking at de fide he really um, exemplifies this looks at augustine's a lot of augustine's letters as well things like that a lot of anonymous later um north african writings um and so you have these sort of polemical text and then you have are, are really i mean augustine's um de catechizandis rudibus is a very rare kind of text but it's probably one of the most explicit sort of examples of one clergy writing to another saying <laughs> you know <laughs> my catechesis it's a great uh, it's one of my favorite texts but it's, you know my catechesis is utterly boring <laughs> what do i do yeah and so Augustine writes back and he, he has just jam-packed with both practical advice, um, theological wisdom, uh, you know, modeled on the incarnation. He does this sort of like, great, this is one of his, you know, places you can see the sort of illuminationist epistemology, you know, come through. And then he gives him these two very, he gives him two sort of example texts uh, of what you would you know here's a again is part of that this interclerical writing here's what you give to to somebody else so you have a lots of you know i i tried to include a, a pretty broad array of genres within within what i'm calling catechetical writing but but centered on this you know what what how do you teach both before, but also the immediate, immediately after. So it's what um, one scholar calls peri-baptismal <laughs> uh, instruction. So sort of teaching around uh, baptism is kind of the, the focus. Focus. That's fun. And when will these books be out? Um, so hopefully that this book uh, will be out with, it's coming out with Cambridge, um, hopefully by November. Uh, oh really this year oh that'd uh, be great yeah it's called knowledge faith and early christian initiation okay and um yeah uh ask your library to i will <laughs>
and you were writing a similar book for a popular audience? Yeah. So the the sort of follow-up book to this is a book that um, has submitted the manuscript before uh, with Erdman's on, it's a more general introduction to catechesis. Um, it's on catechesis in history, theology, and practice as <laughs> the, uh, the working subtitle. Um, and this is in the history section does, you know, 2000 years of, of history rather than just, you know, 200 years. Uh, and then there's a more sort of, I try to look at theologically, what are the sort of theological underpinnings of, of catechesis? So how do different conceptions of God and creation, different conceptions of the church, different conceptions of the gospel, um, conversion, especially like what do you think about conversion <laughs> matters a lot for whether you're going to spend the time to yeah. give a deep sort of instruction in the faith. So I, I, I've come to see that, you know, there's a lot of other, you know, there's the narrow lens of catechesis, but there's also a much broader set of theological commitments that either hinder or hurt one's approach to catechesis. Right. Um, and then also try to get some more practical guidance about what would this look like in a, in a contemporary church? Um, what are the kind of, again, more like what are the kind of questions and guiding principles that we might think about um, in terms of um, rehabilitating a more robust sort of approach to catechesis in the church today? Um, so that's that that project good that's a huge project i think i could follow you up until reformation and then catechesis <laughs> blows up yeah your whole life true. becomes catechesis yeah <laughs> yeah yeah post-reformation it's a it's a wild story and I, I you know you can only do so much in these kind of uh more summative chapters um and it's not i guess the, the purpose isn't so much to give a whole history, but both to highlight the um, pervasiveness of, of catechesis is, is that one of the kind of themes that emerge from that, doing that, that research is that wherever the church is on mission, the church is doing catechesis. And it's kind of obvious when you say it out loud, but um, wherever there's a kind of missional impulse, there's this reaction response and reaction with the culture that is being engaged with the gospel and these qu new questions that emerge um and that it just requires a process it requires a sort of guided set of of instructions uh -huh. unless you're literally just going to hand someone the bible and say here you go <laughs> yeah. um it's going to what is going to happen is that you're going to take out certain things you're going to give a more summative um, you know, conception of, of the gospel and the Christian life. Um, so it just depends on whether you're going to do that willy nilly or, or whether you're going to do that in a more sort of thoughtful, structured kind of way and um, engage with, um, you know, learn, learn from others who have done this. Sort yeah. Of yeah. I'll, I'll take the learn from others. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what did you say at the beginning? Thinking for yourself is. Yeah. For someone else. Yeah. <laughs> I used to have a professor who always said, like, I'm probably wrong, but I'd rather be wrong with the early fathers than wrong <laughs> on my own. Like, yeah. I might be right on my own. I think I'd rather be wrong yeah. with the early fathers because, like, 
if I'm all day, if we're all damn together, like I get that. That's that can't yeah. be on me, right? <laughs> That's it. Oh. Good. Well, I I will definitely check out the book. It's good to know it'll be out sooner rather than later. Yeah, it makes great Christmas gifts for you know children and adults of all ages. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, if you could write the children's version, yeah, uh, for my two-year-old, that'd be great. Yeah. Yeah, when I talk about catechesis, most people think that I'm talking about children's catechesis. Like that's what they're most interested in like, right. with my kids. I'm like, great, buy the book, buy the Cambridge book. It should be a very illuminating. <laughs> Will you not spend $100 for your yeah, child's your children? Yeah, catechesis? Cambridge. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> well, I know I'm taking up a lot of your time. Give me the the elevator pitch of this new work that you're working on now, uh, yeah. with Thomas, on happiness. And why in the world are we doing another book on the good life? Yeah. Why? Why? Um, We seem to not be able to figure out this question. Um, (laughs) So this project is um, the the elevator pitch as a retrieval of Augustine and Gregory of Nyssa in dialogue with contemporary human flourishing literature. So my colleague, uh, Thomas Breedlove, and I are both work here at Baylor's Institute for Studies of Religion. And we both work on this massive um, uh, Templeton grant-funded project called the Global Flourishing Study. Um, It's a cool $43 million project, (laughs) Uh, five years, um, 200,000 people. You know, this this major major study, there's about 40 uh, researchers involved. It's a joint project that we, Baylor um, Institute, does with uh, Harvard Human Flourishing Program, uh, along with uh, Gallup and the Center for Open Science. Um, But uh, Thomas and I are both trained in theology. He wrote his dissertation on Gregor of Nyssa and contemporary uh, French phenomenology. And we had written a couple of articles, covering a couple of articles on Gregor of Nyssa. We talk about these things and um, and we said, well, we should write an article about this. And then um, we we just had a, a wonderful experience in the co-writing process. Um, and, you know, just know how to give each other the proper amount of grief for ill-worded sentences and things like that. Um, so we both just, both just found the process very creative and very um, generative and started batting around the idea for a book project on, on this topic. So... Um, what we're doing, we're engaging, we are sort of working with um, some of the contemporary social scientific research on human flourishing. And that that's sort of its own conversation that's developed, you know, um, over the last 20, 30 years under the yeah. banner of positive psychology, under the banner of the scientific study of happiness. So this sort of discipline is has sort of um, the scientific study of happiness is has really just you know shot off, um, and it's only slowly sort of been like, oh yeah, there's this long tradition of thinking about um, well-being and happiness and and the good life, um, and so there's been some interest, you know, among the social scientists and looking at say Aristotle um, and occasionally Aquinas, so they'll look at some of these ancient traditions that articulate. Um, different conceptions of flourishing. For instance, you know, one of the two of the main sort of 
frameworks for thinking about flourishing is called eudaimonistic happiness and hedonic happiness. Right. Like, that's language that the social scientists are using. Well, good. Um, and they know that they're drawing this from, from ancient Greek conceptions, but they're not, they're not that interested in um, uh, ancient Greek philosophy. So the trajectory from happiness studies now into what's more often called flourishing is a way to take a much more holistic um, interdisciplinary approach and saying, well, it's not just your you know, personal individual sense of whether you feel good or not. Right. Flourishing is connected with, um, you know, your, your physical and mental health. It's connected with um, the, 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 the place that you live in, the community that you, that you live in. Um, there's, there's connections with financial, political stability. Um, and, and surprisingly, there's a strong interest now in studying um, character and virtue because they've, <laughs> they've read enough Aristotle to realize, well, Aristotle says that you can't flourish without virtue. And so maybe that's true. <laughs> but how would we measure that, you know, empirically? Yeah. Um, and so as the, I, I see, I take that as a kind of olive branch from the, the social scientists <laughs> want to say, oh, like what? What do you theologians have to, can you please help us <laughs> think well uh, about um, these, these pressing human questions? Yeah. Um, so I don't think, I mean, I do think we ine inevitably will try to make distinctive claims within, say, Augustinian studies or within Nissen studies. There's a few places in which we want to say that, um, Again, because of this lens, like we're reading, we're reading Augustine now after reading uh, the, you know, the Harvard Human Flourishing <laughs> research. Yeah. So now we we take some of that lens and we read Augustine and then we and we read Gregory and say, well, uh, what is what does flourishing look like there? Yeah. Um, and and we notice different things. So one of the things we noticed was, and this is there in and and Gregory's scholarship, but we looked at the place of food. Um, mm. The way that he talks about food and the just distribution of food, food and um, uh, these questions about vice and <laughs> how much is too much, and this this questions about limits, and and it's all it's all it's much more connected. What what we think that um, ancient authors especially help us see is that you can't really understand human flourishing without also understanding human nature. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so one of the things that, that I think that this exercise will help us see will be to help at least give some categories, parse some language for understanding the, the deep connections between our visions of flourishing and well-being and our, our visions of what a human being is and how we understand a human being. Um, these kinds of these kinds of, you know, at one level, very basic questions, but, you know, easy to bypass when you're when you're out there just doing the surveys and doing the polls and the, these sorts of things and saying, this is what it, this is what flourishing is. Um, and so there's some distinctive sort of gifts and um, contributions that not only ancient authors more generally, I, which is, I think people have seen, but also some distinct contributions that both Gregory and Augustine can make. Um, yeah. Good. Yeah. I don't think surveys are the most helpful for determining the nature of a human being. <laughs> right, like very good for do you feel like you're flourishing very bad for the normative question yeah <laughs> um, yeah 
I'm I'm happy to see these come together because especially coming out of Augustine studies, moral motivation is just yeah. a huge a huge question. Um, if you stick with Augustine, you have some good motivations with eternal conscious torment and yeah uh, that sort of thing. But something always on my mind is if if we take Augustine's grace a little more seriously than he does, it seems in those things like what's motivating. Uh, yeah how do you incentivize that i'm very interested in yeah in rhetoric and aesthetics uh and i've i've seen a i think a good resurgence in rhetoric mm-hmm. the past few years yeah. hopefully more in aesthetics other than just carol yeah. harrison holding down the fort but yeah. <laughs> uh yeah these these bigger questions to move beyond like what is the right thing to do or yeah. even what is human flourishing to how to get people into that and the social scientists I yeah. think are very helpful in actually seeing why people are or are not flourishing. Yeah. And yeah. I think we'll see too that one of the sort of big themes of our the study that we're a part of is, is the global flourishing study. Most yeah. of the sort of scientific study of happiness has been done in the West, um, which means it's it's just implicitly laden with a lot of fairly secular sort of ontologies. Um, and even when they invite sort of you know theologians into it you know they're sort of made to bend the knee to well augustine says that happiness is really only for the blessed life the afterlife and but but we need to like well but what can he say yeah the good of this this worldly life and so i've i've, I've seen and that seems that seems to be a, a strong kind of pull and well if you want to be a part of the conversation <laughs> you have to like you know, bend to the secular knee and that's yeah. and that sort of thing. And so I think we don't feel that, that constraint. Um, and, and so we're, we're more interested in saying, well, what actually do these, these sort of quote unquote, otherworldly um, frameworks, um, what do they do? How do they work? Like, what is their, you know, what do they contribute to this vision of flourishing? Right. And we actually think that that's going to resonate more with a, a more global sort of understanding well i would hope so because when you can bring the theological voice into things you can get out of sort of economic measurements of flourishing right yeah and hedonic is a bit pejorative i know but hedonic measures of flourishing yeah in in many ways taking into account for those things i think one of the things augustine does is really he's much more he's attentive to those kinds of questions the questions about pleasure and um the the senses um he he won't let you stop there <laughs> yeah. but he can engage with you there and so I, I do think that's yeah one of the many sort of things that i think can think can come out of that is is maybe even seeing seeing past or seeing your way through some of the you know i think a kind of one version of the sort of purely aristotelian notion of flourishing is that it's, that it's just virtue and and self-control and moderation um, and, and hedonic is just pleasure. And it's, it's just this. And I think there's ways that um, early Christians really see, see their way through some yeah. of those um, knots. Absolutely. Uh, well, good. I won't keep you uh, any longer. You've been very gracious with your time, but tell me what do you think first that we should pay attention to more in Augustine's writing? And what what good work do you see being done on Augustine that you'd recommend? Yeah, I think there are 
has always um, been ever sort of, I, I guess it's one of those minds that just keeps producing, um, keeps attracting great, great minds, not, not my own, but other, <laughs> other people's that are reading Augustine. Um, I'm, I'm interested in, I think, more and more the, the kinds of, actually some of the, the parts of Augustine that initially attracted me to him, which is the, the ecclesial um, Augustine, the, mm. uh, the man of the church, that sort of thing. So readings that, that um, I, I love the philosophical readings of Augustine. I'm just naturally interested in philosophical questions and intend to see those more. Like I, I like to <laughs> see those in the sermons and, and all yeah. like that, but, but more, uh, I see more and more the kind of readings that the read Augustine as a, as a bishop, as a, um, as a theologian um, and, and read, read him in those kind of categories. And so, and, and likewise with with the ancient rhetoric stuff, I, I like all that. I like I like the ancient philosophy stuff, but um, I've been more more inclined to that that side of Augustine. So I think of uh, Han Luen, Concert Comlines, recent book on mm-hmm. Augustine, Augustine on the Will, um, came yeah. out P uh, a few years ago. I think it's just a wonderful account of Augustine on the Will. Right, this <laughs> central topic in in Augustine. Um, but through a um, sort of creation, fall, redemption sort of lens, yeah. like she's able to um, read Augustine on the Will in new and generative ways. Um, and so I, I find books like that just really, really encouraging and really helpful. And it also just happens to be a, just a well-written and great book. Um, so I, I, I see, re, re, you know, texts like that. Um, come along and I just think that's great. This is great, it's great news for, I guess. Good. Um, yeah. I've, I've heard yeah. good things about that. Um, yeah. It's been on my shelf for longer than I'd care to admit, but yeah, it's not a short book, but it's a not a short book. I'll give you a recommendation back just because I was thinking about it. Have you read Michael Glowaski's book on rhetoric in yes. the homilies? Yes. I would put that in there. Um, I wrote a review of that for um, oh, reading religion um, and mostly to get a free copy <laughs> from Brill, <laughs> but ended up really, really loving it. Um, and he does a lot on, um, you know, catechumens, um, the, the newly baptized. Yeah. So he kind of does this um, threefold staging, <laughs> but he really, he really helped me understand um the role of of narratio uh in its in its sort of classical rhetoric form yeah. and this is the central so in augustine's de catechizandis that text one of the things that he does the questions for how to teach catechumens is like how to um teach the narrative of scripture the narratio yeah uh, and so those are those two example texts that augustine gives are examples of the narratio of scripture it's sort of history of redemption how do you tell to newcomers how do you tell this history yeah you can't just tell them everything like you have to you have to tell something you have to tell a narrative and so glowowski's book is i think really helpful and in looking at how is narratio used uh in its ancient context it's a loose term as all sort of <laughs> ancient rhetorical terms are yeah. but he really helpful stuff on on narratio that i thought was just really really good 
So Good. yeah, I'm glad the, you read the, it. The readings are, I think you're, you're absolutely right. Like those kind of, they draw on the, on the rhetoric. Um, and what, what's his name? Dodaro, Dodaro's book on, on that um, was, was quite good as well in terms of the uh, decorum and, and things like that. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think that's great. So there, there's these great sort of impulse to read Augustine in an ancient context, but then also bring it to the church, the ecclesial um, exegetical um, uh, rhetorical in the sense of uh, sermonic, you know, yeah. rules there. Yeah. When I say rhetorical, I'm sure there's, plenty of ancient scholarship on rhetoric in general. But as you get this overlap that you've expressed between ecclesial catechism and human flourishing, and mm-hmm. especially the, the motivation side, I think rhetoric yeah. really comes into play there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And Michael, and, I also learned later, was a he's a Regent College grad, so... He is, yeah. Happy, happy to yeah. see that in the the digging around good well thank you for your time alex i really appreciate it yeah it's been an absolute pleasure thanks for having me on i'd keep chatting i need to get home and make dinner (laughs) get to my family my day is just getting started over here oh yeah the day is ending for you so i'm done different ways yeah (laughs) good well i'd love to uh, um stay in touch i'll definitely look into your book but i'll try and keep updated on what you're doing and hopefully we'll talk again before too long Yeah, no, thanks so much. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Alex Fogelman. If you liked our conversation, check out his work and the work of the Institute for the Studies of Religion at Baylor University. Keep an eye out for his upcoming books. There's a link in the description. Also, check out his recommended works, Matthew Pino's The Catechumenate in Late Antique Africa, and Han Lewin Cancer Comlines, Augustine on the Will. There's a link below for these as well. Our theme music is Oh Great Light by Jess Ray, and I'm your host, Joshua Blanchard. As always, thanks for listening.